For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Folks, welcome back to the Anthony Gordon Show. You know, as cliched as it may sound, today is special. Today is special because I think the the guest that we have the honor and privilege of having in the studio is one of the most insightful people that I've had the privilege of interacting with and someone who as the cliche goes just gets it and i think it will be self-evident in the course of our discussion so dr mark gulston welcome to the anthony gordon show we're going to do something a little bit different mark i could sit here and for 15 minutes i could articulate the accolades of your life i could talk about your bio i could talk about um your successes i could talk about your appearances in um, numerous major networks and shows, or we can, we can really get into some content which I think will touch the hearts and souls of the listener, and I'd like to do the latter. So forgive me for being brief by saying Mark is a renowned psychiatrist for the past 42 years, someone who's written seven books, uh, not only Book, these aren't books that have gathered dust, but uh, books that have ascended up to the bestsellers list. Uh, someone who is a um, a go-to person of note uh, for the likes of the uh, the FBI, uh, a number of uh, entities and organizations of note. But I'd like to really get into some of the themes because the whole purpose of this show is to try and give some wisdom and some tools to uh, hundreds of thousands of people, millions if I, if I may, are folks that uh, are not are unhappy and are um, and are not empowered to to try and figure out how to make this journey more fulfilling and more meaningful. So let's start by saying the following. We both know, Mark, that, that, that suicide is epidemic. So the rap I have of you is for the past... Uh, 25 years or so, you have played a leadership role in the suicide world, if you will, by being a person, a professional who folks who are suicidal have sought counsel with. And all my research, research shows that none of your patients have ever committed suicide. That's a, that's a, uh, that's, that's something to be proud of. And what I, I think what I'd like to drill down on is to try and ask you, why? What are you doing? What's happening with folks that the whole world is dark and the, the one way to take the pain away is just to end it all? 
and somehow a dialogue with yourself or interaction, a, a session with you, uh, and apparently they they take a different road in life. What do you think is happening? What what are you doing? What are you sharing that's having these unbelievable results? A little background and uh, <clears throat> and people remember stories, and so I hope hopefully this will reveal something about it. So one of my fir- early mentors was probably the top suicide specialist pioneer in the world. His name was Dr. Ed Schneidman. He co-founded the Suicide Prevention Centers in Washington and Los Angeles. He okay. uh, was the founder of the American Association of Suicidology. Okay. And I was at UCLA doing my psychiatry training, and he was one of my supervisors and then a mentor for over 30 years. And what would happen is Ed would go up and do consultations to still suicidal patients that needed to be discharged. Now, they weren't acutely suicidal, Mm -hmm. so you couldn't keep them there forever. But the residents didn't want to see them because they thought if they left, they'd kill themselves. And so in order to be discharged, you needed to find someone on the outside who was willing to see them. So Ed would see them, and he'd always make the same call. And I, I can just, I can hear his voice now, and I miss the man. And he'd call me, he'd say, Mark, this is Ed. I'm here with this lovely young woman. I'm here with this handsome young man. They're in a lot of pain, Mark. You could help them, see them. And then he'd refer them to me and I'd start seeing them. Now, one of the advantages I had is that I never worked for an institution. After I finished training, I was out there. And early on, when I was out there, I I noticed that as I was looking into my patient's eyes, Mm And I was checking boxes. Mm-hmm. I could see their eyes disengaging. So while I was saying, how's your sleep? Um, do you have any means of hurting yourself? And as I was checking their boxes, there was something that they were telling me with their eyes, which I later learned was, I'm running out of effing time and you're checking boxes. Now, they didn't say that. But the but I'll tell you, there was one incident yep. that probably flipped everything uh, and change the way that I look at the world, listen to the world, and listen to people from their inside out. Okay. And my book, Just Listen, is about how do you listen into people's eyes and cause them to feel felt. So there was a patient called Nancy, and she was referred to me by Dr. Schneidman, and she'd probably made three or four suicide attempts before I saw her and had been in the hospital three to four months. In those days, you could stay in the hospital for a long time. And I was seeing her for about six months, two, three times a week. She never made real eye contact. And I thought, I don't think I'm helping her. But that's mm-hmm. as long as she went without a suicide attempt. And there was one weekend where I just finished moonlighting. And moonlighting means you go into a, it was at a place called Metropolitan State Hospital right. in uh, Southern California. And you cover for other doctors. And sometimes you're up for 36 hours. And that weekend I had been up that long. And I come in and I see Nancy on a Monday. And I'm sleep deprived. But I'm sure. And, and if you're sleep deprived, you know that your physiology and your mind plays tricks. Sure. So I'm there. She's not looking at me. And suddenly all the color in the room turns to black and white. So I'm looking out at a room and it's black and white. And I thought, wow, this is weird. And then I got these cold chills running through me. Oh, and I gosh. thought, oh, I'm having a stroke or a seizure. So she didn't look at me and it wasn't rude. So I did a neurologic exam on myself. So I'm an MD. So I'm tapping my, show, my, my elbows, looking at my fingers like this to see it. Am I having a stroke or a seizure? Yep. Oh and she's gosh. just looking like like this. <laughs> and I realized, no, I'm not having a stroke or seizure. And then I had this crazy idea that I was looking at the world through her eyes and feeling it through her feelings. 
And because I was sleep deprived, I blurted out something that normally I would keep to myself. And I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad. And I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will think well of you. I, I will think well of you. I'll miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to to get out of the pain. And I thought to myself, dang, I just gave her permission to do it. I just blew it. And I remember saying to myself, don't put that in the medical record. <laughs> <laughs> and so she looks at me. I mean, she she's she goes from sort of never making eye contact. So once she, she was obviously in earshot to this. this uh... yeah, she's in the room. I'm seeing okay. her as a patient. Okay. And so, you know, her eyes are sort of flitching back and forth. And then she locks into my eyes. And I thought she was going to say, thank you for understanding I'm overdue. And, and, I, and, and, I, and I looked at her and I said, what are you thinking, Nancy? And then she looked right into my eyes and said, if you can really understand why I might need to kill myself to get out of the pain, maybe I won't have to. And then she smiled. Oh, my gosh. And then I said to her, while I had her eyes locked on mine, here's what we're going to do. I'm not going to give you any treatments, advice, or anything that you've already been through that hasn't worked because if I do that, you're going to come back here and have to feel guilty telling me why you didn't do it. Would that be okay? And then she looked at me with a look that said, keep talking, I'm intrigued. So, and, and then I said, she didn't say that, but I'm looking, I'm looking at the world through her eyes. And I said, this is what I'm going to do, Nancy. And I leaned into her eyes and I said, I'm going to find you wherever you are. I'm going to keep you company there because you've been there alone at 2.30 in the morning, being really pissed off that you were alive at 7 in the morning. And I don't want to keep you there alone. Would that be okay? This is, it's unbelievable. Can I, can I make a, 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 a sidebar comment? I don't want to interrupt your flow, but the difference between sympathy and empathy, where you, where you literally with the person and the person feels comfortable dropping their guard because somebody else is gets them the context where that is germane um and an area that uh i've had some experience in is in a house of mourning so according to uh jewish law when a person enters to comfort a mourner the jewish law is such that you are not allowed to open your mouth. You're not allowed to volunteer. You're not allowed to begin the dialogue. You just sit with the mourner. There's been a lot of research which shows the, the, the fact that a person is not alone feels there's somebody with them. And instead of the, the cliches that we people, I guess well-meaning people say like, they're in a better place or they had a wonderful life, which is platitudes, which really means nothing. <clears throat> Apparently the best thing to say is nothing, hug them and cry with them. And they feel that you, they feel that they're comforted, they're not alone. And there's something therapeutic about that. Yeah, uh, so I wanna give some tips and tools that hopefully people who are listening can take and use. 
So I've been trying to figure out what the heck I did for all these years, and I've figured it out, and I'm part of a documentary called Stay Alive, which people can find at youtube.com forward slash stay alive video. And it just won an honorable mention in the Los Angeles Film Awards. And in it, I interview a fellow named Kevin Hines, and Kevin Hines is phenomenal. He's saving lives all around the world. He jumped off the Golden Bridge, and he survived. And uh, he's... and, And so... The subtitle is An Intimate Conversation About Suicide Prevention. But here's part of what I learned. I wrote an article after Anthony Bourdain uh, killed, uh, uh, killed himself, and, and it got 500,000 views and 70,000 uh, 70, reads in like seven days. And the title was uh, Why People Kill Themselves, It's Not Depression. So obviously that drew people in. Oh, wow. And so what I talked about is I said, you know, there's hundreds, maybe billions of people that are depressed who don't kill themselves. There are people who lose their jobs, lose their marriages. They don't kill themselves. And I think they all contribute to it. And I said, but one of the things in my observation as a, as a suicide interventioning interventional psychiatrist is that at the end, what they all have in common is despair. And if you break the word despair into D E S P A I R, it means feeling unpaired, unpaired with hope. Hopeless, helpless, powerless, worthless, useless, meaningless. And when they all line up, pointless. And so they pair with death to take the pain away. But if you can pair with them in the dark night of the soul so that they feel felt, they will pair with you. But as you say, if you're too busy giving them advice or reassurances, you're just really doing something to take care of your own anxiety. Right. And don't get me wrong, these people scare the hell out of you. I'm sure. But the point is, when you can pair with people, it helps them pair with you. And in the documentary, and something that I get interviews, I probably do four interviews a week now on the topic of suicide. Oh. And in the documentary, if you do go to Stay Alive video, YouTube.com, slash a stay alive video. If you've been touched by suicide, you can listen to the whole thing straight through 72 minutes. But if it's a little rough listen, we've broken it up into eight episodes and I introduce some of them. Kevin introduces something, a Japanese pop singer, Reiko introduces some of them. But in chapter seven, Mm -hmm. there's something where I I talk about, which I'm trying to learn what it is I did. And what, <clears throat> what I talk about is something called targeted interventional empathy. Okay. Targeted interventional empathy. And if you want to think about what that does, uh, if you have an abscess, you know, the way to treat an abscess is you go and clean it out and you leave a drain in and the body heals from the inside out. You don't have to suture it up. The person's not going to leak out. They're going to heal. So targeted interventional empathy is going to people to find that infarct mm-hmm. inside their psyche, soul, and spirit, and you touch it with accurate interventional empathy like I did with Nancy, and, and, that, and you keep them company there, and then you leave an empathic drain in there of connectedness, and they heal from the inside out with hope. It's an unbelievable concept there. So in, the, so in that segment, the, chapter 7, one of the tools of targeted interventional empathy is what we call the seven words. And I'm going to try it out on you. And you're a little bit hyper, so I want you to take a few deep breaths to take this in. Okay. So I want you to imagine that you're a pushy, angry adolescent, and 
your parents are worried and they say, well, you seem upset. You want to talk about it? And you say, leave me alone. I'm fine. Get off my back. Leave me alone. Okay. Yeah, I'm fine. Uh, or a sullen spouse says the same thing. And so human nature, when they say that, is, oh, okay, you back off. You sort of lift your hands up and say, you know, I'm here to talk to you. You know, you might feel better. I'm fine. Leave me alone. So that's the usual response. Mm-hmm. So with targeted interventional empathy, what you do is you let, let them vent. You wait two seconds looking in, and you look into their eyes. And the two seconds means you're not reacting or getting defensive, but you're communicating that you've, you've taken what they've said. And you say, yeah, I know you don't want to talk about it, but seven words. And they're going to say, what? Yeah. Or they might say, what the F? Yeah. Yeah, seven words. So they've re-engaged because they're pissed off at you because they told you they didn't want to talk to you. And then you say it this way, and the way you say it, and I'm looking into your eyes, the way you say it is you're a syringe going into an abscess, drawing the pus out of the deepest wound inside them. And so it's all the tone. Mm -hmm. It's not checking boxes. And you say, yeah, seven words. Hurt, afraid, angry, ashamed, Alone, lonely, tired. And when I said this to Kevin Hines, and you can see it in the video, he does what a number of the suicidal people I've seen over the years do. He kind of cocked his head. He smiled. And I say, pick one. And he says, all of them. Yep. And then you say, good, good. Pick one. Angry. Ooh, take me to when it was at its worst. But see, what you're doing is you're making that connection any of you who are in business, I hate to make this a businessy thing, but what, what we've done here is the assumptive close. Assumptive close, I was going to say. Or, you know, because you assume if they're, if they're feeling badly, they're feeling one of those words. Sure. And so they grab onto the words, which is different than saying, let me ask you, do you feel alone? Do you feel angry? And you're checking boxes. See, when you check boxes, you're putting a barrier between you and the other person. And to them, it feels like you're holding up this thing to protect yourself, which you are from being contaminated by their despair. But when you lean into it with the seven words, they lean in to connect with you. I love this. Can I personalize this, Mark, if you don't mind? Please do. Let me tell you why the show even began. The show began because the journey I've had and the God-given talents that I've been endowed with and the cards that I've been dealt converged, meaning I speak at numerous major um, Jewish retreats. I've spoken at commencements, programs, and campuses, etc. And what over cumulative period of time became evident to me is there's a tremendous amount of pain out there but more to the point of why we launched the show is that there's a dearth of people or platforms where people are speaking to potential solutions, how we can alleviate people's pain and potentially help them get more direction so that they are not a, that they don't feel like a, a hamster on a treadmill and feel like the egg time is going out and they are doing nothing with their lives. If you pick up which someone with your tremendous EQ and intuition has, 
a high energy level in me is because I feel some of the cards that I have been dealt are access to probably high profile folks who are in the athletic world, in the celebrity world. Um, people that have been, I have co-speakers with who have got a high, high profile um, social and media presence who can help a show like this get above the noise and be, and get all the downloads and all that good stuff that that differentiates an excellent, you know, uh, successful show from a mediocre show. And I feel after 120 years, as they say, that this is my calling and that there are not that many people that have had the opportunities of going to the best academic institutions in the world, being surrounded by some of the wealthiest people in the world, some of the most famous people in the world, whose late mom was one of the most prominent therapists in South Africa, who's been gifted with a certain EQ and insight into people. And I want to try and disseminate a message to help people have some direction and alleviate a lot of their pain and the nervous energy, if you will, <clears throat> is wanting to make sure we're doing everything possible for this show to be a success so we can get the message out. And I'm trying to not make this about me. It's, it's about the message. And I did a tremendous amount of research um, you know, in the space, I, and I, I didn't see any other show that imparts this message and has access to the kind of high-profile folks that I do. So I feel that the, cl the clock, in a sense, is ticking, and I want to do everything that I can to tip the scales to ensure the success of the show. So for people who are listening, uh, so I know Anthony doesn't want to make the show about him, but I'm about to. But I'm also going to make it about a lot of you out there who are doing podcasts and want to help the world. So my read on you, Anthony, is your goodness, love of your mother, wanting to honor her goodness is compelling, but your mouth is convincing and there's a disconnect. So it's your goodness and, and the opportunity and not wanting to blow it and wanting, and wanting to seize the opportunity and scale your mother's goodness out into the world that's compelling you and driving you. And I think people pick that up, but whether it's your training, your habit, you know, Harvard Law, all this stuff, what happens is by the time it comes out your mouth, there's a convincing quality and it creates dissonance. And what dissonance mm -hmm. is is when people... Uh, when what they hear doesn't match and see doesn't match what they feel. So it's, it's your incredible goodness and heart that's so compelling. Okay. But what gets, what, but people can get distracted from it with the rat-tat-tat convincing. I believe the compelling is going to grow into it. There's going to be a part of you that calms down and becomes more centered and deliberate. Mm -hmm. And then people are going to get an even more articulate communication from the best part of you and that's what and that's what's going to help people is when people can be infused with the best part of you which really feels a sense of urgency an opportunity a platform and 
also a window because all opportunities, and you know this from dealing with athletes, that every opportunity has a window yep. and you're in the middle of a window and yep. it's open and you want to make sure that you, you help some of that hurt before the window closes. Now you're going to try and keep it open, ride this pony as long as you can. Right. But, but does any of that make uh, sense yeah, to yeah, you? It, it resonates unbelievably. And I'm looking outside and I'm seeing Danny and Colin, the guys at Cast Media, where um, I think is the premier uh, company in the podcast space. And you, if you ask them the energy level that I come in here with, and guys, well, let's make sure we do um, take the right strategies and routes to ensure that we, we, we're going to get the message out. I know intuitively that it's so important to me it's so important to me, and I, I think that is it's part of the legacy that I, that uh, was the baton that was passed to me. And I just came back from a Passover program till one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning every night. I was speaking to folks who have you know different issues, and I know what's out there, and I see a lot of these platitude self help things that are that are not cutting the surface, and I feel that. This is a medium that's powerful. This is a medium that's growing. We have, thankfully, a lot of high-profile good people that are prepared to, who, who have a platform, that have social media following, that will want to help us. And I just don't want to blow it. Mm-hmm. So it does resonate. We couldn't call the show the rising tide that lifts all hopes. That's a great name. You can have it. I, I, you know, I, I spew these sound bites and uh, I give them to the world. But but that that's that's. It sounds like the vision is. I want this to be the rising tide that lifts all hopes. So I I won't mention the name because it's one of the most prominent motivational speakers in the world. Um, that I I went to this person's seminar. And I want to be careful not to say anything pejorative about. And then I had a private audience with this person. The level of my disappointment was unbelievable. I didn't feel that there was any connectivity, any desire to get to know the type of program that I would, that I'm embarking on to help people. It was a complete narcissistic rant with every expertive in the world. I left that, that, that interaction with this person thinking the world at large looks up to this person. It's a, it's a farce. It's a joke. How can they not see that? And so that's what I'm trying to be the antithesis of. So, so here's the challenge, and I don't want to get into politics, but everybody's going to know what I'm referring to. We have an epidemic of people who feel disenfranchised, hopeless, powerless, and when they happen upon someone who comes off as powerful, whatever, people fixate on that. Yeah. And when you fixate, it is like you're, it's like you're hardwired to that person and you don't care about the substance of what they're saying. And one of the reasons it's tough to break people free of that person or ISIS Mm -hmm. is because you now have a respite from all the hopelessness and powerlessness that you felt previously and you don't want to go back to that yep and that's and so how do you cause people to break a fixation 
that is giving them a kind of relief, even though it's totally irrational. Yeah. And that's a challenge. And, uh, and it's interesting because a number of organizations reach out to me and say, how do we engage our audience? Yeah. And I say, if you want to engage your audience, it's less important what you tell them than what it is that you get them to tell you that reveals who they are. Which is a perfect segue. Can I take that segue? Your book called Just Listen, I think is incredibly powerful and resonates <clears throat> with me and the, and the underlying premise of the show because I think the target audience, it turns out, would primarily be the millennial generation who are drowning in technology. One of the occupational hazards of being involved or being armed with technology is it's a it's a reactive, not a proactive medium. It's the, the there's a notion of um, hating silence. Um, there's a feeling of you have to respond. The, the premise, as I understand of your book, Just Listen, is I think very much what this generation needs. One of the reasons that God gave us two ears and one mouth is we should be listening twice as many twice as much as we speak. Any well-researched marketing sales program trains people that 80% of the narrative should be from the prospective client to the other person as opposed to trying to hard sell something. How do you possibly know what the person's needs are without listening? And yet we've got a generation where people don't let people finish their, each other's sentences. They speak over each other. What, what, did, what, what is the underlying uh, message of Just Listen? And is what some of what I'm saying captured in the book? Well, the Russian edition, and, and the book is in 22 languages, and it's fascinating. I, I speak in Moscow teaching empathy to managers from the Russian Federation if you look up Moscow, Goulston, YouTube, you'll see they made a three-minute three highlight reel. It has uh, English subtitles. And uh, it's, the, it's the most receptive audience I've ever spoken to because Americans don't want to listen. But I, I, I want to, because I, I do this thing of being able to speak to something. So, so you didn't ask me this, but I'm going to respond to it. You said, when these millennials are uncomfortable with being quiet, What's going on and what would be a language to engage them instead of sending them off to being frenetic? Uh, and by the way, if you're a millennial and you're with another millennial and you want to help connect with them, this is what they're uncomfortable about. They're trying to stay away from the possibility of being alone, lonely, and everything they're doing is meaningless and empty. Can you repeat that, please? Why they're uncomfortable with the quiet is they're trying to run away from the pot of feeling alone and lonely and that their life actually might be meaningless and empty. And they don't know what to do about it, so they run from it. I mean, here's an anecdote you might relate to. Uh, a, a millennial came in, this was some years ago, mm -hmm. and full of energy, uh, 
could have been you, but you, but but the, but this isn't you. But they came <laughs> in with the rat ta 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 ta. I can relate. So, and I I couldn't. They were talking faster than I could think, and I said to them, "Shh," and they said, "What?" I said, "Shh, listen." They said, "Listen to what?" I said, "Listen to the quiet, because it's located between the noise." in your head and the noise in your life and it is screaming at me so loudly that I can't hear a word you're saying. That's amazing. And they said, what? I said, just close your eyes and breathe them through your nose and listen to the quiet. It's there. And so he closed his eyes, started breathing through his nose and I said, just stay with it. The quiet, I don't want the, the, the quiet wants you to hear it. It's screaming out to me for you to hear it. And then after about 30 seconds, he collapses sideways on the couch. And after another 30 seconds, he starts to cry. And wow. because I understand, you know, this, I understand people from their inside out, you know, I let it go. And he cries for about five or seven minutes. And there are times when he pulls his legs up to his chest, like a fetal position. So I guess he has to go all the way back to the beginning. Right. And 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 I know it's going to ebb and flow. And so about five minutes later, you know, it starts to settle down. He's there lying on his side and he opens his eyes and they're bloodshot. And, you know, he kind of flickers his eyes and then he sits up and then he looks at me. And he looked about, you know, he looked about 30 miles per hour or, or, or whatever, hundreds RPM slower. And he looked lighter, emotionally lighter. And I looked at him and he had this huge smile on me. He had this huge smile at me. Mm -hmm. and I said, what are you smiling about? And he said, I've been looking for that all my life. And everything I do everything I do to get me there takes me further away from it. That's and I, unbelievable. And I said, you got a lot to think about. <laughs> <laughs> the it that uh, this person... Serenity, calmness, peace. So I, I, made a, I made a comment to you, Mark, before we started the show today, that in the Hebrew language, the essence of something can be found in the word. Face... There's no singular word in the Hebrew language. Panim, you've, the reason why it's plural, as the, comment, the commentaries point out, is because as opposed to the word face coming from facade, which is this disingenuous mask, Panim, the ultimate peace, serenity, the ultimate sense of being at one is when the external face and the internal face, your internal world and your external world are in parity. And I think that this generation, in my experience, and I speak to a, a lot of the, I'm flying up to San Francisco to speak to college kids, is a lot of them suffer from a proverbial imposter syndrome. They're going to wake up one day and the whole world's going to find out that actually they're not so cool. And actually the car that they're driving is leased and they're using somebody else's credit card. And actually, even though uh, they, um, you know, know the hip hop, they are desperately unhappy inside. And, it's gonna, and they feel they're going to be found out. 
which is one of the reasons why in the show, the theme is for people to be true to themselves. The, the notion of a happy life being a pain-free life is completely erroneous, that everyone has pain, everyone has suffering. And I think the power of a show like this, when you have a world-renowned psychiatrist like yourself, when you have world-renowned athletes and celebrities, which are going to be part, saying, I've had failures. I've had many, many black eyes on this journey. And the be true to yourself, be who you are. It's a very different message than the message being imparted by pop culture and by the pop media. So I'm going to do an intervention with you right now uh, because, uh, because you because I think we've developed this trust and this rapport and you're going to let me do it because apparently there's no way to stop me. <laughs> um, because it was interesting. I was talking about this gentleman who fell, you know, the millennial. And, and, and see if you can feel what I'm about to say. Okay. Because what I hear you, what you did is you have a, a compulsion to make sense of something, impart reason to it, and come to a conclusion. And you were doing that. But what I was picking up is that you wanted to get away from the elusive quiet inside you that not being able to get to hurts, that there is a quietness in you, mm -hmm. a peacefulness that you seek, mm -hmm. just wanting to be able to exhale and maybe even if God is using you to reach people and give them hope, you know, just being able to sort of say, you know, uh, you know, you know, can you, uh, you know, can I take a pass this afternoon? Uh, but that's, that's what I'm feeling is that you could resonate with wanting to still the agitation, to feel the quiet, to feel the peacefulness and to come from that. And it's painful how difficult it is at, at times for you to get there. And you will often default to, a uh, a strong your intellect, your reasoning coming to conclusions, and um, you know, and we all do that. It, you know, one of the things that I try to monitor myself. I, I want is, to tell you that you are one hundred percent correct. You're, we'll say more about that. Okay, you are one hundred percent correct. You are one hundred percent correct. Um, and I feel like I am on a mission. I absolutely feel like I'm on a mission. I feel the clock is ticking and I feel it. There's two components that you need to know. And by the way, you incredibly, you should become a psychiatrist. You know that, Mark? <clears throat> the reason why you're so on the money, I think is twofold. <clears throat> this wasn't an impulsive thing. It was many, it was several years. And I can give a shout out to folks like Dennis Prager and people like Ben Shapiro and folks that really said, you've got a message You've got a background, you've got an accent, you get to people, you, you need to you, you need to impart this message. And I felt like I've always had this calling and I felt that things sort of gelled in the last period of time, the message, the content, and thankfully very prominent people were put into my life. But, you, you, but you're quite correct that sometimes I feel that there's so much pressure to ensure that we get the message out, that we help people, that it's exhausting. And it's okay to sometimes 
sit with one of my kids and and uh, and, and play backgammon. But it's hard for me to relax. Very hard for me to switch off because I see so many people wasting their lives and or so many people in pain. And I feel with the blessing of being surrounded by some of the leaders in our generation in the spiritual sense, in the life coaching world, uh, in terms of human psyche, I feel a responsibility and it's a heavy burden. You know, some time ago I, I saw another person and <clears throat> because I can also feel a frustration that you have is that you want to reach people, but you're aware that you can overwhelm people. Come on too strong, yes. You know, and, 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 and my guess is you're aware that when you've done it, you've done it again and you try to reel them back in by talking even more, which just drives them away even more. Very well put. And so I remember I was seeing someone like this who says, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to express, I want to express who I am as opposed to chasing, chasing and trying to grab people and hook onto them and give them a message that'll make their life better, but I can't seem to stop it. And so I'm getting a flashback of someone you're very reminiscent of. And, and even in our session, he kept picking up speed and he was aware that he, he was aware that he has that tendency and he doesn't want to do it. And I remember there was a point in which I said, stop. And he said, what? I said, just stop the racing. And it was not unlike the other person. And, uh, and then he kept talking. Uh, and I said, stop again. Cut the tape. And I did this about seven times. And when he realized that I was unrelenting, and he realized that I wasn't saying stop it out of annoyance, but I wanted to step into the pain that it was causing him and the frustration, there was a point at which he cracked and he just started to cry. And he said, don't you understand? I can't stop it. That's why I'm seeing you. Oh, wow. And I said, uh, I know that's why you're seeing me. And I know that's why you can't stop it. But stop it anyway. Mark, you're, you're amazing. I, I want to say the following because the, the, um, the next guest is here. But I want to say there is, I need to ask you to come back. Because I think there's, there's, you're one of the most insightful people that I've met. And I don't I, you know, say things to falsely endear myself to anyone. Um, it and, worked. <laughs> and I think that your message will resonate. I'll end off by saying the following. I spoke at a Passover program at Niagara Falls. One of the talks, there happened to be, I would say about four or 500 people at least in the room. And it's, I would consider myself very well trained as a public speaker. I've been trained when I was in South Africa by probably the best known person in Johannesburg. I've been through Toastmasters. I've been through every single training. I've never really, I've never lost it in a lecture. I lost it in Niagara Falls. I cried. I cried because, and I think this is a fitting way to end the, uh, the show, the today's session show, is because I was, I was introduced and I had before is this is a person who went to Harvard, Oxford. The truth is I've had a lot more failures than success. There's been uh, many bumps, many curveballs. And I ended with a quote, I believe, of Jerry Maguire. 
which is with all the vicissitudes, with all the, the black eyes, with all the failures, with all the business ideas that went sideways. I love my wife. I love my family and I love my life. And I wish you my kind of success. It's Anthony Gordon. Thank you for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.